You're listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a monthly podcast where we talk about new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. This is Eric Moody with the Making Waves podcast, the monthly podcast of the Society for Freshwater Science. I'm here today with Dr. Catherine Lee, who's a research fellow at the Australian Rivers Institute at Griffith University in Australia, and will soon be beginning a postdoctoral research position at IRBUS, the Intermittent Rivers Biodiversity and Analysis Project at the IRSTI in Lyon, France, the National Institute of Science and Technology for the Environment and Agriculture, a woman of many titles. Thanks for joining me. (laughs) Thanks very much, Eric, for inviting me. You've had very diverse research interests throughout your career, but a lot of it has focused on stream hydrology and how hydrology affects stream processes. So what got you interested in that? I think it was coming through undergrad and just being inspired by great lecturers from the aquatic science department within Griffith University and then getting involved initially in a a research project just after I finished my undergrad on looking at ephemerality in streams in South Australia and how that may influence or challenge our ability to monitor those streams and it just took off from there. Some of your recent work has focused on the complex effects of flow alteration on stream invertebrate communities. So why do we see these very complex effects? I guess because there's so many different components of the flow regime which are ecologically relevant and they don't act in isolation. So if you change uh, duration, then usually, for example, of a particular event, say a low flow event, then you're potentially also altering the timing of when that low flow event may end or you may get a, a high flow event in between breaking up those cycles. So you don't just change one aspect of the flow regime and that's where the complexity comes from. So is there a good way to be able to predict how these alterations to flow regimes will affect these invertebrate communities? There's so many different ways. You can read read papers that use all sorts of things. What I've done with my research is used a few different methods some of them looking at flow data that we have modelled, models for predicted flow prior to modification and flow regimes or flow data that we have from streams now that have been modified and looking at those relationships and then applying those models to systems that are currently undeveloped to see where what changes might occur in the future. So that's one way. But also another thing that I've used is to develop predictive scenarios of flow regime change based on systems in their natural condition. Do you think that using data across different flow regimes that occur naturally, are there challenges in using that type of data to predict the effects of future flow alterations? I think it depends. Yeah, there are challenges, of course, and I think it depends on the system that you're working in and what the fauna or the bird are are adapted to Mm -hmm. as to how they'll they react to these changes. So, for example, in some streams where you get quite lengthy drying periods every year that occur naturally, then changing the system so that you may extend the dry season, say, by only another few weeks may not make any difference at all because those fauna are completely adapted to experiencing lengthy drying periods each year. So you do have to take into account the the flow regime and the, the recent flow history in how you may expect 
fauna to react to flow regime change. So let's talk about the sort of seasonal aspect. You talked about how some of these streams go through long dry periods and then have some other periods of extended rainfall where there are increased flows. So why do you think it is so important to look at these seasonal variations and what kind of effects do you see across time in these streams? The rivers and streams that um, I've worked on that have had those high seasonal flows are tropical rivers from northern Australia. So they're what we call the wet-dry tropical systems. So they experience an intense wet season period for say, four to five months a year of quite consistent and heavy rainfall that then translates into stream flow. And then there's six to seven months of virtually no rainfall. And so for the streams that aren't groundwater fed, they do dry up and turn into a, a series of disconnected pools through mm -hmm. much of the dry season. So these systems, I think, offer us quite an interesting platform by which to study things such as recolonisation and recovery and where fauna repopulates drying systems and understanding those in a natural system where you have really good adaptations to deal with those changes in, in habitat, I think provides a, a really neat way of studying dispersal and recolonisation pathways. And so another component of this seasonal variation are these cyclones that you get in the Australian wet dry tropics. And that's one aspect of climate that's predicted to change under future climate change scenarios. So how will these changes in the frequency and the magnitude of cyclones affect these rivers that you've been studying? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we, we can only really speculate at this stage based on what we understand to happen now. And, and currently in tropical or northern Australia, the cyclones make landfall about one to two times a year on average. And they can actually be quite severe. We've had some really big damaging cyclones of, of recent years Category 5 cyclones, but they're typically associated with high amounts of rainfall falling over short periods of time, but they can transverse quite a distance across the continent so they can spread that rainfall across wide areas, and that leads to wet season high flows <coughs> that then sustain the rivers throughout the dry. And so the projection for climate change in northern Australia is not necessarily for much change in overall annual rainfall, although it does vary depending on exactly where you are. Mm -hmm. But we're looking at, in the future, experiencing even more intense cyclones, but they'll happen less often. So we may go through a year where we don't get a cyclone, or if one does come, it will be extremely intense. And the speculation that I've thought of of what potential implications that might have for seasonality in faunal compositional shifts and abundances and diversity throughout the dry season is that if there is massive amounts of rainfall falling in very short periods of time early on in the dry season, then this may translate into a an earlier or premature loss of flow in some habitats in the dry season. Mm -hmm. And the reason that this might test some of the fauna's ability to deal with that is that what we've found from looking at patterns in fauna now during the dry season is that they are affected by antecedent flow. When there's higher peak flows in the wet season, when they drop off really quickly, 
we tend to get lower richness in the samples that mm -hmm. we find during the dry season. So this is potentially something that may test the resistance and the resilience of the fauna. But as I was saying previously, because they're highly adapted to yeah. this natural cycle, oh. it's, it may be something that, that they are able to cope with. So it's an interesting question yeah. to see what will happen. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that more work needs to be done on understanding how, how these things are adapted to the places that they live and being able to use that information to really have a better ability to predict how these communities will respond to climate change? Yeah, I think that's exactly what, what we need to do. If we know what they're doing in order to come back in the wet season, and it will depend river to river and habitat to habitat, you know, whether they've got access to a hyperreic zone, whether they use that as a recolonisation pathway. Uh, if we can get a grip on that, then we'll have a greater ability and a greater understanding of how changes in the future might affect these systems. Do you think that it's important to look at these intermittent stages between a stream being intermittent and then drying completely to sort of be able to understand how that transition happens and maybe be able to predict how things might change in the future? Yeah, yeah there's great opportunity to do uh, temporal studies on that whole transition phase between flowing low and dropping off the flow up until the stream drying. I think this is where a lot of people are getting excited about now and, and also there's been a lot of research or some research more and more looking into intermittent rivers in that there is biodiversity value within the dry river bed itself and uh, so this phase between terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems, a dry riverbed has value mm -hmm. as a habitat and yeah. I think that's really exciting research as well that uh, we're going to see more and more. Another recent piece of work I've been involved in is looking at low flows as opposed to specifically stream drying in Australia and a recent paper by my co-authors and the, the primary author and that Robert Rolls in freshwater science at the end of last year and I, I think this is something that I've had a lot of interest in during the conference and particularly in terms of the importance of understanding antecedent hydrology in really getting a grasp on the ecological responses to low flow and drying events and I think that's something that a lot of people are recognising as, as important and we really need to have a good understanding as we were talking about earlier in the interview of, of what fauna are adapted to, what sort of organism you're looking at and what's happened in not only the recent history in the flow hydrograph, but also the long-term history. And that's going to have a big impact on the ecological response you may expect to see. You mentioned the hyperreic zone. For the listeners who may be unfamiliar, could you talk about what the hyperreic zone is and then about some of the work that you've done looking at using the, the hyperreic invertebrates as ways of measuring community structures and biotic integrity in these streams that do dry up? Mm. Yeah, so the hyperreic zone has been defined in various ways depending on what the purpose of the research is or the question of interest. But for general purposes and for what I was looking at, the hyperreic zone is the area immediately underneath the, the riverbed but above groundwater where you get exchange between the ground and the surface water. So it's an area of exchange and not only of water but also of nutrients chemicals and biota. So in, in ephemeral systems or temporary rivers, intermittent streams, so any river or stream that goes through a, a zero flow period at some point in the annual water year. If we're looking to use macroinvertebrates, for example, or streams and, and surface water quality to, to assess 
or monitor stream health, then this poses a bit of a problem given that many of our streams are actually intermittent and the predictions are that we'll see more and more flow intermittency in the future. So we may find that we end up having gaps in our reporting record in terms of what the health status is of a stream. And so we were looking with some co-authors, Rachel Stubbington from the UK, Fran Sheldon from Griffith Uni, and Andrew Bolton from the University of New England in, in Australia. We were thinking about whether studying the invertebrates within hyperreic zones during drying times is a potential way of assessing stream health, just as we use benthic macroinvertebrates. Macro yeah. And so I looked at studies that have been done all across the world on the hyperreic zone, looking at intemporary rivers, whether they were in flow or whether they were dry at the time of sampling, and just to see whether there were consistent patterns across the world in the relationship to something, a simple indicator, for example, as taxonomic richness and whether the stream was in flow or not at the time of sampling. And there was consistent patterns, which was quite surprising, really, because the hyperreic zone is inherently variable. Yeah. And so if you looked across different continents, so broad-scale geographical regions, and you also looked at whether the streams within those regions were dry or had some water, stagnant water, or were in flow, we tended to see a consistent pattern of decline in richness with drying. And so this suggests to me that there was predictability in these systems. And so they may be an alternative or a complement to surface water assessments of, of stream health. And I find that quite exciting. So you've talked about in Australia, these cyclones are predicted to be less frequent but more intense. And, for example, in North America, we've heard uh, similar predictions about hurricanes. So do you think that the kind of work that you're doing, looking at stream responses to changes in storm magnitude and frequency and their resulting effects on hydrology could have implications for research and stream around the world? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, we're here at the Society of Freshwater Science Conference for 2013 in Jacksonville, and I've heard some interesting talks here on what you're just saying about these highly seasonal systems in many parts of the world, for example, some quite vast regions of North America. So I think if those projections are similar for changes in terms of cyclonic activity, depending, of course, on what other climate changes mm -hmm. or future changes are going to occur in tandem with that, then, yes, I think there's a real great opportunity there to take results from one area to help understand what might happen in another. On that note, you're soon moving from Australia to France. So how will the work that you've done in Australia connect to the things that you'll be doing? Yeah, so the project that I'm going to start working on is, uh, as you mentioned, the start is called EARBAS, which stands for Intermittent Rivers Biodiversity and Analysis. So that, that project's really exciting to me because I've been really interested in flow intermittency for quite some time and, of course, coming from Australia where the majority of our rivers do not flow permanently and most of that is natural but we've also done a lot ourselves to uh, increase the intermittency in our Australian streams. So it's something that I'm familiar with and I've been interested in in terms of the importance of these systems as, as ecological mainstays of our aquatic fauna. And yet much of our 
ecological understanding as it's developed through ecological theory has come from a lot of the more permanently flowing systems. And, and I can see more and more people doing work on, on intermittent rivers, so I think that's great. And this, this project is specifically looking at the global biodiversity in intermittent rivers and trying to see whether there are sort of patterns that we can hone in on some relationships between biodiversity and flow intermittency and whether that translates between different continents but also different types of, of river systems and depending on where that intermittency occurs during a water year and how long it goes for. But I think it's going to be a really exciting and important project for many years to come. Thanks a lot for joining me and good luck in your new position. Thanks very much, Eric. You've been listening to Making Waves, made possible with support from the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information about this speaker, the podcast, or the Society, please visit us on the web at www.freshwater-science.org. Be sure to join us each month for another fresh idea in freshwater science. Thanks for listening.